I'm Rebecca Cheng Ajulu Bushel, and welcome to the final episode of this series of Physical Capital. We've explored the human relationship with water, what draws us to it, how we use it, what we gain from it, and what it can take from us. We've looked at swimming from multiple angles and hopefully painted a near complete picture of the sport. We've explored swimming through the prism of physical capital, discussing the physical attributes that can give you the advantage in the sport of swimming and how they've been used to achieve greatness. And most importantly, we've spoken to swimmers, from those that push themselves to their limits in the pool and in open water, and to those that swim for fun and those who document its history. And here we are, the final episode of the series. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for joining us on our journey to the heart of swimming and back again. We've looked at swimming from so many angles over the past few weeks, but we come together this one last time to finally say, we know why we swim. We set out to answer the question, why do we swim? And as much as we've managed to paint a wider picture of the sport, what we discovered was that swimming is complex and we swim for so many different reasons. We swim for all of the, all of the reasons, you know, survival, well-being, community, competition, flow. I mean, I, I answered that question in that way in the book because I think that those five different ways of answering the question holds so many of the whys of the reasons, you know, and I think it worked really well to hold, you know, so many of the feelings and the experiences and the people, you know, the characters and their stories of humanity, right? So I think we are drawn to it because as living beings, we need the water evolutionarily speaking. But I also think in more modern life that we respond to it because it is essential to us, to our bodies, but also because it is something that our, now our brains respond to as well. You know, and I think that if, we, if you go too long without spending time by it, even if you are not getting into it, you know, just, I mean, I write about this in, in Why We Swim, but just the science of how our brains respond to the natural environment and specifically to water itself, it's so beneficial to us. I mean, our brain activity changes, you know, when we are around water, seeing it, listening to it, immersed in it. It's, it was so interesting to me to learn that the alpha wave activity in our brains, you know, which is associated with creativity and calm and relaxation, of course it is, <laughs> of course it is. But we didn't know that until we stopped to parse that out and do all of the required experiments to <laughs> give us that data. But we knew that, you know, we knew that to be true for a long time. 
Um, and I think it is evolutionarily based, but also now there's a sense of, you know, we draw a sense of well-being from being around the water that is so essential to existing in modern life. You know, what, what that is so, it is a quite a constructive life and existence we have. And when we return to green spaces, blue spaces, we feel better. You know, we feel more connected. And, you know, something that, that I have talked about and written about a lot is this sense of awe and wonder that is so essential to health. We heard Bonnie say this at the start of the series, but now we hear it with informed ears. Let's open that out a bit more. We are drawn to the water because evolutionarily we need it. It makes perfect sense. Without water, there is no life. And so why would we not feel compelled to check in with it every now and again? Why we swim might be a personal decision for fun, for health, for competition, for survival. But there's no escaping that we wouldn't exist without it. So why not ask yourself, why do you swim? I know this all too well from my own career in the pool, but we also swim for glory, to push our bodies beyond our physical limits and to commit to the process, ultimately aiming to be the best. Here's multi-Olympic medalist, Colin Jones. In 2012, my biggest goal was to hear my name. I wanted to hear Colin Jones representing Team USA. Oh, I always wanted to hear that, right? 2008, I was on the relay, so it was Team USA. That was it. And that's fine. But after being on that relay, what I realized was I get more motivation, not necessarily by me knowing that I am racing, but knowing that across the country at five o'clock in the morning, Nathan's training, that Phelps is training, that Garrett's training, that Lochte's training, and that we are all training so that we can get on that block and be ready for the world championships, the Pan Packs, the whatever, whatever the meet is. And I didn't want to let them down. That was my motivation after 2008. Now you lay in this bed and it's really easy for you to just say, nah, I'm going to skip today. But is Nathan skipping? You know Phelps is in the water. Get up. That is the power, I think, of a true relay. And I think that that's the power that you can harness if you think about it. Even if you're on a high school team, that's fine. Other swimmers are showing up to practice. You don't want to let those other three guys down. Well, we have mixed relays now. Those other three people down, okay? You don't want to let them down. So that was always my, my strength. When it came to the actual relay, again, being a competitive person, I didn't want to be the slowest person on the relay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I always wanted to be anchored. I wanted that. I leaned into that pressure. Did it scare me half to death? Absolutely. <laughs> but at the same time, I always found myself to go faster and find a, a like a whole nother level than I could have ever found before. We spoke earlier in this series about the timelessness of commitment leading to success. Of course, if you want to be the best, you have to have that level of commitment. And that echoes through all sports and arguably anything you want to achieve in life. But we've also learned that it's not just a time commitment, but a commitment of mind and body as well. 
master swimmer and journalist, Nick Hope. Swimming is about the full package. You can train and you can perfect your technique. You can perfect your endurance, your ability to recover. But how you handle the pressure of going out on poolside and delivering your best performance when you're in a completely near alien environment where you might have partisan fans, where you may have no fans. I mean, that was something that many athletes actually found more difficult about the Tokyo Games than before, was all of a sudden there was no one there to cheer them on. Hopefully that won't ever happen again going forwards and we'll always have big audiences. But that mentality is arguably just as important. You need to have good physical conditioning and training, but if you cannot get your head in the right place, then arguably you're not going to be able to deliver the potential that your body holds in there. And I think that is something that so many athletes have become much more aware of. And a big part of that as well, actually, is athletes opening up now about the struggles they're having, not just physically, but being able to say, do you know what? And and this happened a lot when I was speaking to athletes out in Japan at the recent World Championships. Athletes pre-competition, post-competition, saying, do you know what? I've struggled over the last year. Mentally, I have struggled. I'm not where I want to be, or this has been a real challenge for me. And having that openness, I think, can make a real difference to athletes coming through, but also those at the top to know that it's okay not to be okay, that all athletes go through this. And I think that is actually helping a lot more people at the top address the issues that perhaps previously they've hidden. I mean, if you look at Michael Phelps, as we said, you know, the 23 Olympic time Olympic champion, 28 time Olympic medalist, went through some real challenges during his career. We only found out about those when he was in the newspaper, when something had gone terribly wrong. Now, when you look at somebody like Adam Peaty, who hasn't competed at the last two world championships, one through injury and then this one, because he was just open and said, you know, I'm not in a great place. I have had some real challenges in my personal life. And as a result, I need to take a step back. That is something that you would never have had five, 10 years ago, an athlete being that open. And ultimately, while he's taken time away, he seems like he's in a good place now because athletes and the support system around them is so much better than it's ever been. There is an appreciation that athletes will go through this pressure, they will go through these challenges, that they're not robots, they are humans, even though they are superhumans in many ways because of their physicality, and that they need that care and support. And although it can be physically and mentally draining, we also swim to maintain a healthy body and a healthy mind. One third of the Wild Swim Brothers, Jack Hudson. Sometimes people who have had some bad news recently or a bereavement or have an illness or something that they're dealing with, that's quite common, or are just under a lot of stress and look kind of looking for an outlet. Quite common in the cities as well, with people kind of working nine to fives, quite high stress environments, needing a kind of escape and um, something really simple like getting into cold water is very accessible to everyone. It has a very powerful effect on resetting your mind so you're not, you get rid of all your stress and you're just thinking about breathing. It's like meditation. I think more recently, uh, mental health has been a more open discussion and it, we see a lot more articles for natural benefits of uh, like going for hikes or whatever you like to do, going for runs, cycling, and discovering how exercise just in general can help your mental health. And I think the cold water is just the latest iteration of that. It's just another way of managing your mental health. And then the aspect of challenging yourself, which I think is very important as well. So it might start with just a dip and then people are staying in for longer and longer and it becomes quite rewarding. Jack Hudson 
talking about the benefits of wild and open water swimming. He also reminded us that swimming can be an adventure. There's a famous book by uh, Lincox, is like one of the most famous endurance swimmers. Like she's a cold, cold water swimmer, like a pioneer really of the sport. And she has a book called The Day the Whale Came and she's swimming in California and a gray whale calf passes underneath her. In California, she's thinking, thinks it's a great white and it displaces all the water. So as it goes under her, she gets like pulled down and then there's eventually like a spout. But like the way she describes it, like there's all these anchovy and they start like panicking. And when you're in the water, you, it, it's easy for it to feel like really charged. Like you can feel all the electricity of like other animals around you. And I had to get used to that swimming here in Sydney because the water's home to so many, like you just don't, I don't have to think about sharks back home or anything like that. You can just feel the kind of energy around you of like different animals. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would be like uh, having a whale or something swim by you. The myth that black people can't swim still affects so many today with catastrophic consequences. A disproportionate number of black and brown people drown every year because they don't have proper swim safety. And whilst work is being done to turn the tide on this, more needs to be done to change this deadly narrative. We learned that this myth was constructed in very recent history and Professor Kevin Dawson shared that in his research, he discovered that black people have, of course, been swimming for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Two things that I found were that Africans were surfing. We think the first kind of written account of surfing is written in Hawaii by a surgeon on James Cook's expedition. But it's not, it's actually in Africa by this German guy in sometime in the 1660s. Digging deeper, I found that, you know, Africans must have been surfing for a thousand years or more. And so that really blew me away and I found a number of accounts. Another thing that was really interesting is like, we always are kind of looking at bigness, right? Scale and modernity as being kind of the solutions for all things. And so what was really interesting was that I was working with a, an English scholar, Miranda Kaufman. We were researching Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, that sank and found that these eight African divers, you know, the English, they tried to refloat the ship using kind of modern English technology. They fail. So they hire Italians who were considered the best European salvage divers. They failed. But one of those Italians went to Africa, went to actually Senegal and hired eight Wolof divers brought them to England, and they salvaged the Mary Rose for, for a period of time. And incredible organizations, like the Black Swimming Association, are doing incredible work to quash this myth, change this cultural narrative, and encourage more black and brown people to learn to swim. BSA founder and my very good friend, Saren Jones. The BSA has been set up to encourage people, especially from black and Asian communities in the UK to be safe in and around water. It's all about drowning prevention and water safety awareness. Okay, let's start with accessibility. Pools are not that accessible. I mean that in the way that the best facilities are in the nicest neighbourhoods. They cost money to access them. Once you get to these facilities, they may not cater to people who are non-white. So for example, women who are Muslim who want to be in women-only classes, even women who are Muslim, women who just want to be in women-only classes or people who, you know, identify as 
non-binary or as gender fluid and they want to have a safe space. Traditionally, pools didn't offer these kind of windows for people who just wanted to be with their own. Accessibility also kind of branches into swimwear because swimwear has only now started to change. It's been amazing to see like how swimwear has really started to evolve with the times. You know, now we've got, you know, oversized swimming caps for black hair or longer hair. We've got modest swimwear, but still there's the issue of financing because the modest swimwear is really expensive. It's great that it exists, but you know, can the average person spend £125 on an Adidas waterproof hijab and leggings and a top that she feels comfortable in? That's a very big ask, you know. You've got accessibility, you've got finance, you've got culture, which I've already kind of mentioned, but hair is a huge part of that. And that's something that I more personally decided to investigate and explore when I was a journalist, because hair is the reason my older sister quit swimming. She wanted to have what she called good hair. We know that chlorine is more damaging on Afro hair than it is on non-Afro hair. We know that black women spend nine times more than their white counterparts on hair services and products, whether that is literal products that we use every day, or wigs, weaves, braids, locks, relaxer, you name it. Are you going to get into chlorinated water for 30 minutes to ruin something that costs you a lot of money that will last a very long time? Most likely not. But then you also have present day issues that are also affecting people in these communities from getting into the water. You know, we have COVID and the, the aftermath of COVID. COVID exacerbated these pool closures, you know, Pools that did exist in black and brown areas in the UK aren't opening up again. And those that are opening up are struggling because of the cost of living, because these leisure centres can't afford to heat the pools, let alone keep the centres open. So there are all these factors and it's such a nuanced issue. I haven't even mentioned like the whole social element of it, you know, the behaviours and attitudes people have towards swimming. Aquaphobia, myths of being heavy boned, um, near drowning experiences. Um, people first, second, third generation here where it was just not a priority to learn how to swim. The priority was to learn English, to assimilate, to get an education. The more I think about it, it's such a humongous task to tackle that we've taken on at the BSA. But we're doing it because nobody really did, yeah. you know? It's the fact that every summer I switch on the TV and there's been a heat wave and somebody's drowned. That person always looks like us, always. And it's not coincidental. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, academic evidence because such records aren't actually kept. But it's something that we decided we just didn't want to see anymore because, like, why is it that people like us don't have that knowledge of what to do in an emergency? This isn't about kind of churning out more black Olympians. It's about making sure people can go out and enjoy bodies of water and make it home. The incredible work the BSA does is essential because the statistics on the number of people from minority communities that can't swim is shocking. Here's the host of Brown Girl Can't Swim, Samaya Mughal. As I suspected at the time of doing Brown Girl Can't Swim, but couldn't quantify at the time because the data just didn't exist, Swim England found that on average, only 32% of the South Asian community in England are able to swim 25 meters unaided compared to the national average of 80%. They also found when participating in swimming on average across gender, nationality and religion, if you're a female, Pakistani and Muslim, you're likely to face the highest number of barriers. Samaya also serves as a reminder 
that it's never too late to learn to swim. An important and potentially life-saving message to non-swimmers of all ages. Learning to swim as an adult was scary. And it was scary because I'd never really comprehended the mental element of it. The physical side of it, yeah, it can feel awkward and a bit tricky. But actually, as an adult, the thing you don't realise is how much your own headspace can get in the way because you might be scared, whether that's of deep water or just feeling like you look a bit silly. And I think the difference between adults and kids is kids can just be fearless, right? They don't necessarily have that fear of what other people are going to be thinking about them and how they're going to look. Whereas as an adult, the most difficult thing for me to learn to swim was me versus my mind. And that really came to the fore halfway through Brown Girl Can't Swim where I saw a guy almost drown in a swimming pool. He's fine. He features on the podcast. We're now friends. He's cool. But to see one of your greatest fears almost happen right in front of you made all of the anxiety I already had about learning to swim so much worse. And hopefully, you know, adults generally learning to swim will not experience something like that. But it was scary. It was a mental test, but it was the most unbelievably rewarding experience at the same time. A type of joy and elation and confidence boost that I could have never comprehended. So... How does that little girl you met in episode one feel about swimming in the water now? The incredible highs and lows of my swimming career took me to places I never expected, all over the world and to the deepest, darkest parts of myself too. This sport that I loved so much always felt just out of reach. And despite my success, when I realized that the sacrifices I'd already made to get where I was were nothing compared to what was up ahead, I decided it was time to walk away. I still remember that picture I drew for my mum when I was six years old, a little brown girl with an Olympic medal around her neck. That dream remains unrealized for me, but I know my time in the pool will stay with me forever. And the lessons I learned as a swimmer still shape me every day. And most importantly, I still love the water. Every time I get to swim or even just walk beside it, I'm reminded of its transformational power and just how much it changed my life and how much impact it has on so many. And so, we return to these words on swimming and I wonder, given what we've learned, does this sound different to you now? This is Swimming by Sarah Arvio. Our relation to you is the same as that between abstraction and metaphor between the idea of a clear lake and the sighting of the lake to describe the clear idea, one said with a laugh. Oh, I said then, what a fine idea. And now, what lake will embody its fact? And this, aren't we tired of comparisons to the natural world? Then this, and what world isn't natural? Only the world of the mind is unnatural. And this, it defies nature and defines nature and won't be defined the life of the mind. But it's death, one punned. Perish the thought in the deep. All these questions sink away, and only the swimming matters. Water sliding around the head and heart and hip, arms cresting and curving, with, not against. Carried along on the roll and the rush, a good swimmer knows water won't resist, swift or even slow, 
but yes, effortless. Are these words merely pretty? No, my dear. Water is the principle of pleasure and of pain, the receiver of the touch, for the cells and tissues are water-bound. With a splash of a smile, one turned to me. What bodies do we choose? A glacial lake. I've been Rebecca Chengajulu Bushell, your host and writer for this series. James Deacon has been our incredible executive producer, editor, and writer. Lucy Carr was our researcher and production support. Lauren Eisen has also provided research support, and the amazing Ben Yellowitz on sound design and mixing. This has been a Broccoli production. <laughs>